One of the themes of this podcast has been actors figuring out ways to be successful, even when the industry doesn't quite make that path an easy one. It can require us to go beyond our actor training and discover new and hidden talents within ourselves as we forge new paths or even new careers. Steve Harper is one such artist. He is a graduate of Yale and the ART Institute at Harvard, as well as the CBS Writers Mentoring Program and the Playwriting Program at Juilliard. He is also an actor on stage, television, and film. Steve shares his own real-life actor's nightmare in a Shakespeare production back in Cincinnati. But we also discuss how he found himself without a plentiful array of shows and roles he could connect with, so he began writing and producing theater, which in turn led him into television and writing for superheroes like Stargirl. We talk about the collaborative process of TV writing versus his singular process of writing for theater. He has a new collection of his short plays recently published that leads us into a delicate yet important conversation of race and non-traditional casting and what it means to be a black actor in theater. Some of the time when I've been non-traditionally cast, the reviewers or the audience have also made an issue or a question of what it means that I'm being non-traditionally cast. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode of Why I'll Never Make It, an award-winning top 25 theater podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer talking with fellow creatives each episode of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe to bonus episodes and offer your own financial support to the production of this podcast. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. Welcome, Steve, to the podcast. It's very nice to meet you, and I'm so glad you're joining me today. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here. This is, this is already fun. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. We've been talking for a little bit now, and yeah. you are one of the few that I'm actually meeting for the first time. And what exactly was it that, that brought you or led you to my podcast to come on today? I've been thinking a lot about, I, I just published a, a book of short plays and have been working with somebody to help me sort of get the word out about what it is I do and about my work. And we started looking around at different podcasts to see whether there was an opportunity to kind of show up in different places. And we found your podcast and really were delighted by it, by all the terrific interviews. And yeah, so that really got me interested. And then the more I heard it, the more I was like, yeah, I really want to do this. Well, I'm glad I'm on some list somewhere, so, <laughs> right? That's, I mean, you're a playwright yourself, so you just want to be on a list somewhere getting noticed, right? Of course, yes. That's always part of it. Connecting, networking, all of that stuff. Right, right. As much as we want to be artists, this is a business. We still have to make the rounds yeah. and get to know people. Yeah. I re actually remember when I was in college, and it was Tina Landau, actually. She was talking about how if she creates an event and people don't come, then what's the point of the event? And part of what we do as artists really is to reach people. And the more people we can reach, the better. And part of the marketing and the outreach is about that. It's really about the expanding the artistic expression. And it's certainly, yes, from a marketing business standpoint, you want people to buy your book or come to your event, but there's also a connection aspect to it. 
There's a reaching out, finding an audience, just like you found my podcast, making that connection, and then you actually wanting to come and see and find out more about it. Yeah. I mean, ultimately it's about storytelling. So you always want to tell stories and have an audience to hear those stories. And that's part of it. Well, I'd love the three stories that you have brought today. And this first one was when you shared a comedic play that you had written with your acting agent. And you say that it was about how difficult the actor life is, which this podcast certainly knows a little something (laughs) about. And later on, after you shared it with your agent, you got a package back in the mail, which you thought was going to be the scripts, maybe some notes or feedback. Yes. But instead of your headshots and a note saying that they were letting you go. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You must have been in shock. Yes. Uh, It was devastating. I couldn't believe that's what was happening. I mean, I was certain that it was some notes on the script, some thoughts. I mean, it was one of the earlier moments when I was actually reaching out to people in the industry with my writing. And so I thought this is going to be some sort of significant connection in terms of what they have to say about the work or where I should take the work or who I should take it to or or some really concrete notes. And instead, it was, we're getting rid of you, which just felt, it was devastating. It was really shocking. And at the time, when I think about the whole notion of why I'll never make it, I am, I'm too much for these people. Like they really don't want to know was evidence. They don't want to know anything about me. They just want to know that I can do the roles or not. They don't want to hear my opinions. They don't want to see other art. I thought this is the end. This is the end of some big part of my career. Did they give some reason why they were letting you go specifically? (laughs) I don't think there was any reasoning in that letter. They were like, just like, unfortunately, we have decided to let you go. And there was nothing else. It was completely unceremonious, no phone call, no nothing. It was really bad business as far as I'm concerned. So what was it that led you to want to share this play specifically with your agent? Obviously, they're an acting agent. So rather than like a literary agent, what type of reaction were you hoping for? One of the things that I think is really challenging, and not only am I really happy to be making my living as a writer, but I also coach writers. And I feel like a lot of people come to me with complete confusion as to what to do with their writing. Where do I send it? Who do I talk to? How do I get to a literary agent, or there's so many gatekeepers and there's so many doors that are locked. And I thought, okay, well, here are some people I know who really believe in me in this other capacity in my life. Perhaps they'll help me find somebody, or perhaps they'll appreciate this aspect of me and maybe brainstorm, I don't know, a a production of this piece with me in it, or they'll be able to recommend me in other ways. It gets back to that networking we were talking about. Yeah, I sort of thought that they would help me when I couldn't figure out how to help myself in the writing space. And they certainly did not do that. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, what was your relationship like before this incident with your agent? I assume it was a good one. It was really an excellent one, actually. This was an agent that I had gotten out of acting school. They were one of a handful of people who, you know, who approached me after our showcase and all of that. And I really dug them. We'd been together for several years. I'd done some regional stuff. I'd auditioned for some television stuff. I had, to my mind, I had booked a fair amount. Obviously not all the time, because who books all the time? But I thought we were in it for the long haul, but apparently not. I mean, what I have found out since I've looked up these folks is they are no longer in business. And there was some other stuff (laughs) that was going on financially that ended up sinking their company, which obviously had nothing to do with this, but it was a little bit gratifying. (laughs) I was just about to say, did you feel a bit like, "Uh uh-huh, see, that's what you get. Yeah. It was a little bit comforting to see that. (laughs) Right. 
So did this experience then inhibit you from sharing your work afterwards? Well, first of all, I have to say no. I mean, to this day, I still have a persistent streak in terms of getting people to read my work, working on new things and being brave about it in terms of getting it in front of people, people I know, people I don't know, people I want to know, all of that. But I do think it gave me pause about who I give my work to and to be a little more discerning and a little more suspect, maybe to sort of test out things a little bit more before I send something. And I think it is really important as a writer to be not only clear about what I'm sending, but what kind of feedback I'm looking for. So quite often now, if I send Mm. stuff out, I will say, here's this thing. Thank you so much for reading it. And I'd love you to answer these five questions or give me feedback on these five aspects, something like that, where it's, there's a little more of a guidepost. I've heard that before because even with this podcast, I've been part of a group that you can submit an episode to and get feedback. And yeah, yeah, one of the things that they want, they have their own format and criteria. They answer certain bullet points, but they also want you to give specific, did this sound good? Or what about this particular point? Did I, do you think I did X, Y, Z? So I think as specific as we can be as artists, in getting that feedback, I think it helps the person rather than what did you think? It's so open-ended that they don't <laughs> yeah. know where to start. You know, I think the challenge for all of us is we work and live in a subjective business. <sighs> I mean, everybody's yes. got an opinion, of course. And in this age of social media with Instagram and Twitter, and we are more and more as a society empowered to say whatever we think about anything <laughs> and everything and everyone. Yes. And that can be good and bad. Yes. It can be good and bad. And I think (laughs) largely it can be bad, but I think it is important to say, I'm particularly looking for thoughts about this character or this scene or how this particular aspect works. That really helps to guide the conversation, I think. So with that subjectivity in mind, how do you know what feedback is good? How do you know what feedback to let go of and say, nope, that doesn't apply to me? I think it's all for me personally, after a lot of struggle with this kind of thing. It really goes back to what is my intent and what am I trying to do? So I like to think about my material, my writing as my children, right? And so I would imagine, I'm not a parent, but I would imagine if you have a child and that child goes to elementary school or whatever, and you go to a parent-teacher conference and the teacher has some feedback, you as a parent know which feedback is important to you and which feedback isn't important to you. If it's if you're trying to work on the child's manners, then maybe feedback about manners is really important. But maybe feedback about the way she dresses is not as important or the way she sets boundaries is not as important because I've been teaching her to set boundaries. So I feel like in that way, I kind of can slice and dice and say, well, this piece really applies to what I'm trying to do. And the rest of this stuff, I don't necessarily need to pay attention to. And it sounds like that it's also based upon your own subjectivity, like who you are as a writer, the point of view that you have that you want to bring across. A certain person may not share that point of view, so their feedback may be a little suspect or at least not as applicable. Yeah, I think that's 100% right, because I think that there's it's very easy to get into the space of playwriting. If I bring you a piece and I'm asking for feedback on something, I'm not asking you to remake it. And and so to me, feedback that comes back where the person says, you really ought to set this on the moon or these characters shouldn't be people, they should be animals. Like that's not as helpful because clearly I didn't set it on the moon and I don't want them to be animals. So within the realm of what I'm trying to do, I'm looking for feedback on how does it, how does this scene work or how does this action work? Or do you understand the kind of dynamics between the characters more than 
the question is never like, how would you rewrite my work? And I think quite often people take it that way and just sort of run with those ideas. With your writing, especially this play that you gave to your agent, did you have any of that in mind? Or were you just looking for general help? Or did you think they specifically would get this work? I think all of the above. I thought, well, they're going to understand this work. They may say like, wow, this feels really true to life. It's really funny in these ways. And I think I imagined that they might also say, and you know what? I know a producer who might be interested in this, or I know a literary agent who might be interested in this. And I think the thing that's so challenging about our industry is those things do happen sometimes. Mm -hmm. There are instances where, where you might give something to an agent of one kind and they might, they might help you find some other artistic venue or something. This wasn't that. And I think maybe if I'd been more specific with them, they would have at least said either we're not interested or we're not able to help you in this way or, and that was part of the lesson that I took away. Did you have trouble finding an agent after that? Yeah, I did. I mean, and I certainly found that because I connected to that agent after a graduate program, after a showcase, the sort of, I don't know, the momentum of that connection and the way it all happened felt much more significant and much more solid than when I was looking for an agent after that, because there was no showcase for people to see. It felt a little more hat in hand and a little less significant, I think, in the future after that. Well, that leads us into story number two, and this was around 99, 2000, when right. you were in a production of Shakespeare's Much Ado About Nothing. And yes. in this, you were kind of keyed up at this one particular section, this one particular line in the play, and you caused yourself to forget that line in performance. And yes. in that moment, you tried to kind of on-ramp your way back into <laughs> it a few times, but just nothing came. So what did you end up doing? Oh my goodness. This was so traumatic, I have to tell you. What I ended up doing was I kind of improvised something very colloquial <laughs> that I knew captured the meaning in some way. And then I just ju jumped to the next line that I knew and just kept going. And part of what was so interesting about this particular circumstance was this was the second time I was doing this play and this role. And I had done the play years before. This was at Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park. And I had done the same play a couple of years before that at the Guthrie. The production that I did at the Guthrie was, was a really fantastic as the Guthrie does, like very beautiful artistically. Like the costumes were great and there was music and it was really quite something. And at the same time, it was a really difficult professional experience for me. It was a really challenging rehearsal process. It was, it was just a challenging process. And so I found myself in this new production where it was much less challenging and I felt like I knew the role better and there was a lot of ease to it. And yet, there was this very specific sort of tricky scene that had always been tricky to me, which is a scene where Claudio, which I play Claudio, is about to get married to Hero and exposes her to be a strumpet because he thinks that she's had sex with somebody else. <laughs> and he's wrong. But, you know, he embarrasses her in the middle of this wedding scene. And it was in during dramatic that, fashion, of course. In dramatic yeah. fashion, of course. <laughs> and it was during that scene that this line comes. So I'd been thinking about this scene and how challenging it was, I think, since the other production. And, uh, and it sort of carried that with me and kept talking myself out of, like, it's fine. I kept running through the lines and all this stuff. And I sort of psyched myself up into this one moment where it's just like it, nothing came to my brain. No, I had that before. I used to work at Disney, obviously not a Shakespeare play, but I was doing <laughs> Beauty of the Beast at yes. Disney World. 
at that time, I was doing three shows that day. five shows total, and I was doing the first three. There was another guest on, would take over for the last two. Nice. So in, in my That's three shows- Oh, I love Gaston. Oh my yeah. God. He's such an arrogant, pompous ass. And <laughs> yes, I just love right. it. But in that, there was this one little bit where I'm fighting the beast. I'm supposed to say something and just nothing came out that first show. I was like, well, that was weird. So I, I didn't think anything of it. So then the second show came around. Same part, the line, nothing. Hmm. What is so? So then I'm like, okay, what's going on? So then I go back, I scroll through it, and I'm like, okay, right. Yeah, that's the line. I'm just thinking about <laughs> right. it. Okay, yeah. got it, got it, got it. Third time, nothing. Nothing. Just like, it was just, wow. it's, sometimes we can get ourselves in a little mental trip. Now, the following day when I did it, I was certainly a little worried, but it came to me in that first show and then I was yeah. fine the rest of it. But right. for that day, that line was nowhere to be found. <laughs> it's really yeah. weird how our brains work sometimes, It is interesting. Yeah. And there's such a, I've always found there's such an internal territory with me and whatever the material is. And that's why I try to I always try to do some journaling, some try to sort of expunge all of my thoughts, <laughs> especially as a writer. Like sometimes I'm looking at stuff. I don't know if I could really accuse Shakespeare of this, but I'm looking at stuff and I'm like, I would never say that. Or that's not, that's a really bad line or that's a really awkward phrasing. Or, and then I've got that stuck in my head. And then I sort of trip on that on my way through the scene. And then we're off to the races. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is really the essential actor's nightmare. That's yes. what we all dread and fear, right? Because yeah. how did you feel in that moment when the line was just poof, gone? Oh, completely embarrassed and humiliated. It was just, I also remember too, speaking of that, I remember we got to the curtain call of that particular performance. I went out to take my bow and somebody who I'm sure was relating to that moment, like jumped up to a standing ovation and started clapping. I just thought, <laughs> yeah, you're overcompensating because we both saw that thing that happened. You know that I know that. Okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, at least you had someone there to support you I in did. your moment. Yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, what would you say would be the your key takeaway from forgetting that line? Did you do anything differently or how you prepared for other performances? I guess one of the takeaways is how powerful my mind is and how much there's the potential for me to trip myself up. And what does it look like? I think I'm asking myself this all the time. What does it look like for me to be more kind to myself and more soothing to myself and more supportive to myself? What does that look like? And how do I, how can I sort of make that part of the practice of whatever I'm doing, I think is something that I continue to carry with me since that moment and hopefully before, but I think in a particular way since that moment. Yeah, it's interesting how we can spiral down and the rest of the play can be smooth, but then you get flustered and anxious in this one moment. And yeah. I think that can happen to a lot of us. How have you pushed yourself through that or found ways to ease your inner critic, so to speak? I think one of the things is exactly what we're doing now is, first of all, like talking about it, being able to say like this happened and move on a grief process in a way like anything else. But the other thing is to be really clear with myself, either journaling or saying it out loud in rehearsal or something about how this language is striking me. And to say, well, this is a really odd word. Like, let, can we talk a little bit about why it's this and rather than that? Or why? I think some of those things help to deconstruct those kinds of me solving the problem in my head. If I sort of bring it into the room a little bit more, that can help demystify those moments and then allow me to just move through them. Yeah, because then you're not alone in this journey. You're collaborating with other actors, with the director, yes. whoever it is. Yeah. So as a playwright yourself, do you feel 
a larger responsibility in getting other writers' words right when you perform? <laughs> wow, that's a really good question. I do have a great respect for wanting to serve up what people create. I have a very clear view of that. It's actually, I think, more clear and more committed to that since I write my own work because I want the same respect when people are performing my work. So yes, I feel like I do take that to heart. And I do try to ask myself if it's not, if it's a thing where I'm putting myself on tape or a thing where there isn't a lot of rehearsal, I'm asking myself, trying to do all that table work myself and ask, well, why this word rather than that? How do I find this word? How do I honor this word? How do I make this word special or particular? Yeah, because that's much better to me than, than making it up or saying something else. Yeah, when it comes to that, I've had that same issue before. There's some writing where it just flows out of my mouth so easily. It's almost as if I really am saying it or thinking it. And yeah. then there are those where a word order or like just a particular word choice, and it just feels stumbly coming out of my mouth. Yes. How do you work through that yourself in getting those stumbled words to feel more at ease? Yeah, I think practice always helps. But I also think it's, I like to try to invent why the word order is this rather than that. I try to say, well, if I said it this way, that might mean X. But if I say it that way, it actually means Y. So, mm. so the choice is, I want to lean into the choice this person, this writer is making by suggesting that word order to this character is more important than the way I want to say it. That often helps me. Again, it comes back to the character, to the story the character's trying to yeah. tell. See, I'm also always fascinated by, because as a writer and also as, as an actor, as we rehearse, we do spend so much time learning every piece, every word. I'm often amused to see things, even when I put myself on tape, where I recognize, as I have for decades, that on some level, it's not about the words. So it's about that emotional energy. It's about the flow of the scene. It's about the intent of that moment. And so often when, I'm, when I've done the work to get to sort of glide through the material, and then I say, watch myself on tape or watch somebody else doing my whatever it is, I'm not really caught up in the exact words. I'm just mm -hmm. caught up in the energy. And that's a really fascinating thing to learn over and over again, which isn't to say the words don't matter, but that in the final analysis, the whole experience is about more than the words. Has that helped you in writing for different characters? Because obviously each character is going to have a voice. They're going to have a word choice or a timbre to their speech, the, the rhythm of it. So I assume that helps you differentiate as you write these different characters. Yes, it does. I mean, I think once I do an outline, sort of a schematic overview of what's supposed to happen in a scene, what I recognize is that in some ways I can make certain choices for certain characters to sound a certain way. And at the same time, there are many versions of that. So especially in TV, where there's so much writing and rewriting, I can make a choice and then perhaps my showrunner can make a different choice and do a little rewrite. As long as we're getting to the same space, those choices can be, are sort of modular in a way, as long as we're getting to the same intent. So I've been two seasons as a writer on Stargirl and uh, season two and three, and three is, has yet to air, but it's been a really fascinating process. I think television always is because we're writing as a group and we construct these pieces sort of as a group and then each individually take a particular episode to write. And then the creator in general also will come along and then sort of make some other choices or do some ornamentation on top or make it sound a little bit like the way he or she envisions it in their brain because they gave birth to the characters in that universe. 
That's all part of it. And speaking of that universe, these superheroes are always larger than life. Is that a different type of writing where you're trying to give these, not just powers, these supernatural powers, but then power to their words and power to how they come across? On I think on some level it is. At the same time, I do feel like we are also playing against that. So Stargirl, the character of Stargirl, for example, she's a high school student. And one of the things that's going on in the show is that she's trying to figure out what it means to have superpowers. So she's trying to reconcile her everyday high school life with the fact that she's got these world-saving powers, <laughs> which is part of the fun. So there's some grandiosity, but then there's also her kind of backtracking and saying, did I get this right? Was I too bold? Was I too big? Was I too rude? Did I steamroll people? To me, that's the fun of it, the tension between those two ideas. And in comparing your own writing that you've done by yourself and now being a part of this group on a show like Stargirl, is that easier because there's less burden or is it harder because now your voice, you don't have as much control? Yeah, I guess it depends on the day. <laughs> I certainly think that I have, I've been in the TV writing game now for 10 years. And so I'm more used to sort of surrendering the the work to other people and other forces than perhaps I was at the beginning. So I think there are ways in which it's easier to just, I don't have to come up with every part of this, sort of every brick of the house myself. And that becomes really useful and really can be thought of as easier. At the same time, I also have to surrender my ego and say, okay, well, this changed or that scene got cut or the actor didn't particularly do what I wanted them to do, whatever it is. So there are different ways and different aspects of things that I surrender in that space that, that sometimes are difficult to surrender. Whenever you're in the theater setting, do you find that same surrendering having to happen, whether it's the director or actor taking it <laughs> in a different direction? Yeah, there are times when, yeah, I just actually had a world premiere of a piece of mine done in Georgia Southern University. And it's fascinating, like they did a fantastic job. And at the same time, there are moments whenever you give your work over to human beings, moments when things <laughs> vary, that's just like, well, I don't know if that was what I intended in the scene or right. that energy was sort of different at yesterday's performance. And yesterday's performance was sort of more in the bullseye of what I was thinking so that there is some surrendering there. And yet the joy of that live performance space is I'm always asking myself, is the audience still with it? Are they following? Are they getting it? Are they appreciating the story? Because ultimately that's really the goal. So as much as I want every moment to be the way I thought about it in my head, it's really, if the audience gets the story by the end of the piece, we're good. We're in good shape. But theater is special in that that live element, you, you hear it, you feel it, that mm. audience reaction. Yes. So how do you get that same satisfaction? How do you pat yourself on the back when you don't know how the audience is going <laughs> to receive your television work? Yeah. You know, what I do, not everybody is like this, but what I do is I really lean into social media. So, mm. so I have, I think for the last several shows, I've watched everything that we've done Actually, there was one show that was a streaming show, and it's harder to do that because it's not like everybody's watching it at a particular time. But for Stargirl, which is on the CW before it goes to HBO Max, and for other shows I've been on, God Friended Me, American Crime, it's on at a particular day and time. And so I'll go into the Twitter sphere and I'll look for the hashtag of whatever the name of the show is. <laughs> that can be dangerous are, to do. It can be dangerous, yes. <laughs> but it's the only way to simulate that thing that happens in the theater where you're mm -hmm. actually getting the sense like in real time, 
how people are responding, whether they're shocked or delighted or laughing, or, I mean, you can't hear it, but, but people are tweeting about, oh my God, I can't believe they did that or say that's not going to happen or that was amazing or that was terrible or getting some feedback, especially after working for what ends up being sort of weeks, months in sort of the echo chamber of the writer's room. Right. Because uh, how long after you've written something, does it finally come to air? It depends on the show. It could be several months. It could be half a year. It could be several years. I was actually on a show that a show called Tell Me Your Secrets, which is on Amazon Prime, which is about serial killers and all sorts of craziness that we worked on it for TNT and it aired on Amazon Prime like a couple of years later. So that was there was a huge gap then between what we did and having anybody see it. And so that's always fascinating to see, okay, now people get to experience this and what are they thinking about it or how do they feel about it? Or it's kind of fun to see that. Do those tweets ever influence how you write or what you come <laughs> up with next? Not really. I, I just, I think it's... I haven't done a scientific survey, but it does seem to me that if I quite often on shows, there are just as many people saying that's amazing as saying that's terrible. I'm never watching the show again. And so take I mean, it all I'm, with a grain of salt. Okay. Yeah. I mean, those negative ones tend to stick with us a little more. They kind of dig in a little deeper yeah. than the compliments. But yeah, you're right. Generally, even on a place like Twitter, you'll find those that will appreciate and acknowledge the work as much as tear it down. Yes. So right. yeah, you, yeah, you have to take that. And that's also, I think, where it's nice when, you know, the distance of TV, it's like, it's not my show. So I'm not fully responsible for any of the choices. Right, you're so, just so one of the writers. It, yes. yes. So if somebody hates it, then I'm like, okay, well, that's fine. It's not just, it doesn't fall on me. If it's a play that I wrote that they hate, then it feels a little different because I was responsible for all of that. Yeah. yeah, it's a little more personal because as you said, that's your child they're hating. That's right. Yes. Yeah, that's a different experience. <laughs> In addition to his jobs as writer, producer, and actor, Steve has also held a job I'm very familiar with, being a reader for theater auditions. It's actually a great way for actors to be in the audition room and to not only see and hear other actors and how they audition, but to also know the casting team and the feedback they give to a wide assortment of actors. Steve shares such an experience with a famous actress, and why she did not appreciate his skills as a reader. Thinking in my mind that I was actually giving her space to sort of shine so that I didn't want to take up too much space in the room. And, uh, and that wasn't what happened. It sort of backfired on me, I think, in a way. Now, bonus episodes like these are only available to monthly supporters of Why I'll Never Make It. So if you'd like to help this podcast out and get access to bonus episodes like Audition Stories, then consider a monthly subscription by going to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe. Or just look for the link in the show notes. Well, that gets us to story number three, where you said that by the mid-90s, you had gotten so quietly frustrated looking at material that fit you as a Black actor, because in, in acting classes, you were doing the classic scenes of O'Neill, Miller, Williams, right. th these legendaries of theater. But you decided to start writing your own work because you weren't finding your fit. Now, this may seem like an ignorant question, a simple question, but... Yeah. What exactly made these classic works not fit for you? 
Yeah. So what a great question. I actually remember before I started writing, here's a perfect example. I had a very, I had a really wonderful high school drama teacher and we started working on a project outside of, we weren't going to produce it, but we were just going to work on it. A handful of students and this teacher and I, and what we decided to do was to do the glass menagerie. So we were working on scenes from the glass menagerie, terrific play, as we all know, right? Tennessee Williams. And we realized, I realized I was playing the gentleman caller. So I started to think, okay, I'm the gentleman caller. This play takes place early 1900s. Gentleman caller is a black guy who shows up at the door of a Southern belle who's protective of her daughter. Well, what does that mean for this play? And what does it mean to play that reality? What does it mean to ignore that reality? Because that reality isn't on the page. It's one thing to be an audience member, but to actually be attempting to embody the situation as we're, we're my, this particular drama teacher has always said, acting is the art of real behavior and artificial circumstances. So we have this, the cir- artificial circumstance of us pretending to be these people, but in this circumstance where if I were to show up at that person's door, what would really happen there? And do we play that at all? Do we never play that? Do we ignore it? Do we put it in a specific moment or a specific series of moments or a specific kind of awkwardness to those scenes and those lines? What is that? And I think one of the interesting things for me as a Black actor is both in class and professionally when I've had the, I'm always happy to be hired, but when I've had the quote unquote good fortune to be non-traditionally cast, those questions always come up. Like there's no way to not have those questions come up. Like we can just, we can all just pretend or we can sort of say, well, what does this mean if we've said it in this circumstance? And that was the thing that I kept bumping into all the time with these particular pieces. And half the time I would ignore them. Half the time I would try to wrestle with what do we do about that? And that in and of itself, I think is a, is kind of an exhausting burden. In addition to all of the difficulty of what it means to be an actor anyway. Right. Of just doing the role itself, then this other layer, because are these questions, and forgive me if I'm stating it wrongly, but a sense of how much of your blackness to show and how much of it to just let subside? Well, I mean, this is the interesting thing. It's a, it's an interesting, even to hear that phrase. So let's say we're doing a production of Glass Menagerie, again, to go back, and you switch the genders of the roles so that the women are being played by men. So what do you do then? Like, can you put your maleness aside or do you just use who you are to portray a different kind of Amanda? Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And that becomes the question that you're always left with because there's no way to take away your maleness. There's no way to take away my blackness, like unless I'm going to go whiteface or something, or we're going to do some kind of elaborate makeup. Right, exactly. So it's always about the challenge of what it means to integrate, as all acting is, the challenge of what it means to integrate me into this space of whatever the fictional material is. And it Mm. just becomes a deeper sort of math problem if you're casting non-traditionally. And the other thing that I think is really interesting and that conversation we were having a moment ago about Much Ado About Nothing sort of fits in here nicely. Some of the time when I've been non-traditionally cast, the reviewers or the audience have also made an issue or a question of what it means that I'm being non-traditionally cast. So it's not something that's just going on in my head. People say it changes the flavor of this play to have a black man play this part. Or our production of Much Ado at Cincinnati Playhouse in the Park was set during World War I. And the director, who's a fantastic man, no longer with us, Ed Stern, had cast me in this part 
And an audience member at a talk back said, well, I was a little confused and taken out of the play. What does it mean that you said it in World War I and you have a black guy playing this part, right? And so Ed said, as we often do, I hired the best actor and don't have anything more to say about that. And we moved on. But I do think there's a fundamental challenge of even the most generous, non-traditionally cast things. Now, I will never argue against Black actors and actors of color getting more roles because to me it's a jobs issue. And at the same time, this question of where do I fit? How do I fit? Who am I in this space? How do I reconcile that? All of that led me to writing my own material because I just, I started to say there's, as we advance through the decades, there's gotta be more material for, for people of color, for people of difference, for, and so my collection, Future at Plays to Save the World, which I'm super proud of, which premiered on May 1st and is published by Laughing Panda Press, has like 17 plays that I created that are very intentionally diverse. So there are Black people and white people and queer people and Asian people and Indian people and older people and just a conglomeration of some of these plays take place in outer space. And it's all over the map because this is some of the space, the material, the flavor that I felt like I was missing when I was an acting student doing O'Neill and feeling like I don't really fit into this space. Does it almost represent the kind of diverse scene work that you would wish that you could have done yeah, whenever you I were studying? Yeah, I think it does. I feel like it's the kind of piece that one of the reasons why I was really interested in publishing it, I really would love to see theater students of the future using this work and and maybe using it in their showcases or creating an evening where they produce these pieces, several of them together, like an all in the timing or all that sort of thing. Like, I just feel like there is a space in our theater life for plays that are diverse and wacky and humorous and magical realism and all of those things that I just feel like we need more of. Well, it's interesting the way that you brought it up, because of course, as you speak, I'm then trying to put this in my own self. You talked about maleness. Can I let go of my maleness? And in relating it to myself as an actor, I think, yes, most of the roles I've played, most of the plays that I studied as well, it was mostly white male right. playwrights. Yeah. And I mean, wonderful playwrights in and of themselves, but it was, they looked like me. They were like me in some way. Yes. That... I didn't have to think about it being different or do I need to let go of something or heighten something. It was just, oh, well, this character does this and now I do this. Right. It, th there wasn't this extra layer of anything that it's interesting. That's what you brought up. And so there's these levels of questions that I think that I and people who look like me are like me don't have when it comes to portraying roles. And, and I think you explained it so eloquently in different ways of thinking about it. That, that I think drive the point home a little bit more so than I've heard others express. Yeah, I'm glad to do it. I've been, you know, I feel like I've been wrestling with this for decades upon decades, so I'm really happy to be able to speak to it. And I think it's really complicated. I mean, mm -hmm. here's the other thing that I think is interesting. As an actor, and again, I will never argue against actors being cast because I do think it's a jobs issue. So I'm happy to be cast as anything. As an actor in my brain, it's like, I could play anything. As a playwright, if I write a Black character, I want a Black actor to play that character. If I write an Asian character, I want an Asian actor to play that character. So that, so I see it from both sides. Like on the one hand, I feel like, oh, I want to be the chameleon. On the other hand, if I create a tapestry of different kinds of people, ethnicities, genders, whatever, I'm doing that for a reason as a playwright, as an artist. I'm creating a particular 
circumstance by putting those people in there. And I think we I think it's really important to recognize that. I also have recognized too that as a black actor being non-traditionally cast in what theoretically whatever is mostly a white play, it is like being the dot of color in the middle of a black and white painting. And if we were looking in a museum at a painting that was black and white, except for a dot of color, we would all say, well, there's got to be a reason that spot is blue or red or green. We wouldn't say, oh, what all colors are the same. We would never do that. We'd say, what's the True. artist trying to say? What does that mean to the rest of the piece? What does it mean to me? How does it make me feel? We can't escape those things that we bring to other kinds of art. So how far or what is that line that separates like, well, this is a gay character, so someone gay needs to play it or trans or black or Asian. Yeah. What is that dividing line of, well, now we need to get into actually casting it as written rather than, well, let's be open and best actor plays the role. Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I think on some level, I would want to take it case by case. Where do we open the door for for newness and fresh perspectives. If there's a trans character and you take, I don't know, just off the top of my head, Leonardo DiCaprio plays him. Well, he got that part because he's Leonardo DiCaprio, not necessarily, right? So, so suddenly we're sort of bowing to his celebrity and his following, and maybe the money we'll make if he's in that piece, as opposed to finding an actor who will really embody in a genuine way what this experience is. So, you know, financially, we've been making the case as a culture more on the Leonardo DiCaprio side than on the other side. Yes. So on some level, it's just like, let's flip it around and see how it works, right? Let's lean into those things that only that, there are only so many parts at present that this that a trans actor is going to be able to play. Let's allow a real trans actor who also might have been to graduate school and spent years in the trenches and has been doing a lot of like very small, non-traditionally cast whatever's in whatever. Let's bring that person up and allow them to do something fresh and new. I think that's a just way to look at it. At the same time, I think part of the solution for all of us is just to continue to invite more diverse writers Mm -hmm. to create the material that requires more trans folks so that those people get to work more. I feel like it's a both and. There are times when it's going to go the celebrity way. There are times when it's going to go the sort of the genuine, this actor should play this part kind of way. And I think it depends on the creators. It depends on the intent. But I would like to see it go more the way in the future that it hasn't gone in the past. And the audience is part of it, too. I mean, it's not just those, the producers, directors, that these people who are in power need to start making choices that can diversify the field. But audiences are a part of that process, too. Because even yes. myself as watching Hamilton, I loved mm -hmm. it. The racial component of it was intentional, but also it didn't throw me. I right. George Washington was played by a black man, but was wonderfully done. And I love that. I mean, right. so yeah. there's things to love about it. Then I watch A Doll's House Part 2. The mm. two lead actors are white and their daughter is black. I had a problem with that. It right. bugged yeah. me because yeah. I'm like, well, biologically, that makes no sense. How would they yeah. do like? Yes. And so the whole time it yeah. was throwing me and not because she was a bad actress. And so even different plays, as you say, case by case, why was it okay in one instance, but then the other, it bugged me or was yeah. a, a sticking point? Yeah. And I think part of that is Hamilton made an artistic choice across the board to populate that entire play with 
all kinds of people. And that's not the case, I would imagine, of A Doll's House Part 2. I still you think know, it was intentional to it have was a intentional, black daughter. Of course. But, the, but, my, but I guess my question would be, was the black daughter the only black person in, the, in that world? Yes. And that becomes a different kind of thing. It's like I, long ago, like one of my favorite roles that I pined for until I got to do it was Paul and Six Degrees of Separation, which is an incredible part. And I had seen a production of it in the D.C. area where I lived for a while, where Paul was not the only black person in that play. But there was another I think another character was played by a black actor. And to me, that didn't work because part of what that play is saying has to do with Paul being entirely and quote unquote entirely different. From the other people in that play. That's just my pers- my personal perspective on that play. So I feel like that play really works with one black actor in the middle of it. And all of these white people who are like, what do we do about this black guy? That, that That's what that play is about to me. So in that instance, that really works. But if you have... I think it's a little bit different if you're if you have a nuclear family and you only have the one black person in that nuclear family. Not that doesn't happen, but that can be distracting. And again... I will never, I'll never sort of downgrade the fact that actress got to work or that any actor of color gets to work non-traditionally as I have done. But I think there is an artistic and perception consequence to pay for that because we can't ignore who we are. We can't ignore what we bring and whatever we bring in the space of theater or in the space of art is meant to say or mean something. And I think that's why these discussions, while important, can also be so tough, because it is so subjective. That someone who wants more work like Hamilton or more uh, Color Purples to be produced or shows like that, they want that, but then they'll see something that distracts them and then they're not so sure. Or then a straight person's playing a gay role, was that okay? Or vice versa, is that okay? You know, then it then gets into all these little nuances and we're trying to nitpick every little subjective point. And it can be, there's a lot of minefields out there when it comes to these questions. Yes, there are. And again, like, I just wish for more stuff, more Hamilton. More, yeah, to, more, yeah. To me, if yeah. Hamilton isn't like this one-off, it's like it's so right. unique. This exactly. unicorn. If Hamilton isn't a unicorn, then exactly. anything can happen, and that's, that's what right. I want to see. Yes, me too. Now, I'm curious. What do you think after all this discussion that we've been having? What do you think is the solution, if there is one, of how? there can be more diversity, how black actors and writers and directors can be more integrated into the theater process. I think it's largely a financial thing. I think it's largely about growing more producers, find, having more people out there. I mean, nothing happens in the industry, in the arts without money, right? Mm-hmm. So where are the people who are funding these plays, whatever they are, we just need more of them. We need more people with more open minds, whatever color they are, to put money into pieces that are diverse so that, as you said, Hamilton is not a unicorn, so that there's just more and that there's there becomes, I think, the more money gets put forth, then there's more opportunity. Then it's also about, I encourage all the artists out there listening, I, and I talk about this a lot in my coaching practice, there's a real power in creating your own work. There's a lot of opportunity but again, we have to be funded. I created my own web series and that really helped my TV career. And I also acted in it and we got an Emmy nomination and all these things happened, right? And that wouldn't happen if I hadn't stepped up to create something. So I think we're taught as actors 
to simply take what we're given. That's part of the discipline of acting schools. Like we audition, we take stuff, we do it, and we blah, 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 we move on. But how about changing the mindset to I'll take something that I'm given and then the next thing I'll create, and then I'll take something I'm given, and then the next thing I'll create. Like, how can we grow that and also have the funding that that becomes more possible? I think our entire landscape of theater and the arts would change if more of that was possible. I think that's such a great way to put it. It's that give and take of the actor also giving back, not just playing these wonderful roles, but also then giving back something, whether it's they produce something, write something, direct yes. something. And I think that's a big reason why so many artists, especially actors, become these multi-hyphenates that dabble in other things, because there is a sense of wanting to give back and put other things out there, which is certainly what you've been doing over these last many years. Yeah, thank you. What a great example somebody like Ruben Santiago Hudson is. He directs, he acts, he's got his one-person show, as well as directing August Wilson work, as well as like appearing in movies. And it's like more of that for all of us, I think is something I'd love to see. Yeah. Well, thank you, Steve. This has been so great to get to know you. And I truly appreciate your openness and just being vulnerable and <laughs> open yes, and candid with your experiences. Really, really, truly a pleasure to be here and to have this conversation. I'm really glad you're bringing these discussions to audiences. It's really, it's really a beautiful thing. Thank you so much for joining Steve Harper and me today. But remember, the conversation continues not only with his audition story bonus episode, but also with the final five questions on the Win Me blog. Also, check out his new collection of writings called A Few Short Plays to Save the World. You'll find links to all that and more in the show notes or by going to whyillnevermakeit.com. Well, that does it for me, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Background music is by John Bartman and Blue Dot Sessions. Why I'll Never Make It is a WinMe Media production, and it is a part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. Join me next time as we talk more about Why I'll Never Make It. <laughs>